Welcome to the Sports Spectrum Podcast, where faith and sports collide. Here's your host, Jason Romano. Welcome, everyone, to today's podcast. This is episode number 53. My name is Jason Romano, and this is Sports Spectrum. Thank you for being here and joining us on the program today. Apple Podcast, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, that is the place to subscribe and download this podcast. And by clicking that subscribe button, it assures you you never miss an episode of the podcast. You go on your device, your your iPhone, your, your Android uh, phone, your tablet, whatever it is, your laptop, go to the podcast app and search for Sports Spectrum and just click that subscribe button. You will never miss an episode of the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Today's guest is Andy Andrews. I'm excited for you to hear Andy's story. You may recognize his name. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He's written uh, books called The Noticer, The Traveler's Gift, and his latest, The Little Things, Why You Really Should Sweat the Small Stuff. They're all really great books. The first two that I mentioned, The Noticer and The Traveler's Gift, are sort of narrative stories that teach you kind of life lessons, leadership lessons. His latest book, The Little Things, Why You Really Should Sweat the Small Stuff, chock full of wonderful nuggets. It's a smaller type book. You can read it in a couple days. Lots of underlining I did in this book. Really great, simple read. Uh, Highly recommend you get it. But Andy's story is pretty crazy. So he's not only a best-selling author, but he's also also a renowned speaker. He's also married to Polly, has two kids, Austin and Adam. And he's gone through a lot of tragedy in his life. He lost his parents uh, when he was a teenager and had to kind of navigate through that part of life. And then uh, a big moment happened for him that allowed him to turn the corner and kind of get his life back in order. And uh, God really did some work in him and and just some really great stories that this guy has about life and, and all he's been through. But he also now in terms of being a speaker and a writer, but he's also a consultant and he deals with a lot of people in the sports world and shares a lot of uh, different stories with the, the sports teams across the country, both professionally and collegiately. I want you to listen closely later in this podcast. He's got a wonderful story of an encounter with Alabama coach Nick Saban, the great Nick Saban. So I think you guys will enjoy this episode quite a bit. Listen closely here because uh, Andy is is chock full of nuggets. You might want to get a pen and paper down and and write some and take some notes, which we really don't, you know, suggest a lot here on the podcast. But Andy's got such great wisdom, so have a pen and paper ready and be pre- be prepared to take some great notes here. Without further ado, here is our guest, the author of the Little Things, New York Times bestselling author and renowned speaker, Andy Andrews. Andy, how are you? Good, buddy. How are you doing, Jason? Andy, I'm doing great. It is a pleasure to have you here. I'm really excited to talk to you because your story is amazing. The books that you've written have been extremely impactful, and you're a different type of guest than we normally have on the podcast, which is why <laughs> I like that. You're an author and a, a speaker, and you're not like sort of this guy who's a coach or a player or an analyst. So I'm really excited to kind of dive deep into your into your story, and that's where I, really where I want to start is... Tell us about life growing up in Alabama. There's a poignant moment that happens to you at 19 years old, and we'll get to that. But I want to talk about just the beginnings of what your life was like in Alabama growing up, sports, faith, school, whatever it was. What was life like for you? Well, yeah, it was it was it seemed pretty normal to me at the time. I you know, I look back and I'm very grateful for my 
for my upbringing, I'm grateful for the state in which I grew up. I, you know, we don't have any professional sports in Alabama, so it's Alabama Auburn 365 days a year. And, uh, you know, you, you make your choice very early in life. A lot of times your parents make your choice for you. So I grew up an Alabama fan. Okay. And, um, and yeah, I, I grew up, a lot of my growing up years were in Dothan, Alabama, and playing Little League and going to church. My dad was uh, actually a minister. And, and so it was, it was a very normal, I, I guess, uh, growing up, my eighth grade teacher was very influential in my life, a little African-American lady. I'm looking at her picture right now across my office. Hmm. I have her picture up, Mrs. McLeod. She was the first person ever to tell me that I was kind of funny, first person ever to tell me that I could write. In fact, it was, Jason, it was one day in class that I had said something that made, made everybody laugh. If people say, so you were the class clown. No, I was not the class clown. <laughs> I, I was the class wit. The class clown is the guy who runs across the field naked in freezing weather. I was the one who <laughs> talked him into doing it. Okay. So, <laughs> yes. so, but I had said something and the class laughed and Mrs. McLeod looked at me and she said, out. And I said, ma'am, she said, out of my class. And I was like, I was horrified because I really loved her you know and so I, I i gosh i pick up and i just slump out of the room and she follows me out and she closes the door and she turns around and she says look you're funny okay you are really funny you crack me up but you got to give me the class sometime you get you need to pick your moments you'll get more out of being funny if you pick your moments now get back in there and you act like I got all over you. Do you understand me? <laughs> what a great teacher. Now you say your dad was a minister. So tell me about just church life as a kid, your faith and what that was, that, what that looked like. Did you, did you know what you believed? Were you kind of, uh, just acclimated to it because of your parents taking you to church? What did that look like for you? Yeah, I really, I, I guess I was, I guess I was acclimated, uh, because we went to church all the time. Um, I, I, I did believe, right. I mean, I, I accepted Christ when I was, um, like 12 mm. and, uh, and, and there was, there was a time later, you know, about 20, 21, 22, some stuff going on. I, I know you referenced it a minute ago that I began to not really question whether God existed, but I certainly questioned whether he uh, cared about me. Mm. <laughs> and and uh, so it was it, it was a, a great beginning, but I had a lot of uh thinking to go through as an adult to, to figure out what I really did believe. Hmm. Well, we're going to get to that in a moment and talk about your journey, especially your faith journey. But I want to take you to, you said your childhood, fairly normal. And then 18, 19 years old happens and your life changes forever. So let's take us to that moment at age 19 and the dramatic events that took place for you. Yeah, my, my mom died of cancer. And that was something, you know, that we all saw coming, right? She had she had, had breast cancer and this was going on for a couple of years and just got worse and worse and worse. And and uh, finally, you know, my mom died. Uh, but then, like out of the blue, several months later, my dad was killed in a car accident. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, within a year, I had lost both of them. And I, and I, you know, Jason, I've always been one of these kind of people. I, 
obviously that was a horrible time, but I've always been able to take a bad situation and make it worse. And, uh, and I did, <laughs> mm. I, you know, I made some bad choices during that time. And, uh, you know, it didn't happen quickly, but I, I ended up literally homeless before that was even a word, you know, 35 years ago, nobody was talking about homeless people. That wasn't a term anybody used, but I was, uh, sleeping under a pier on the Gulf coast and in and out of people's garages, which is not safe or smart, but, uh, but I did. And, um, it was during this time I met this old guy late one night under my pier, scared me to death. Uh, but he was the first guy ever to really kind of, uh, I, I guess, tell me the truth about myself to get me t uh, thinking. And, you know, I, I said a, a few moments ago, I wasn't really sure. I, I, I never did not believe that there was a God. I just wasn't really sure, um, you know, he he was paying any attention to me. And uh and I, the way I expressed it one time to the old man is I, because people ask me about that time and they say, were you, were you sad? And I was like, no, I wasn't really sad. Well, were you depressed? No, not really. Well, were, what were you? I was mad. I was just mad. Hmm. I mean, and, and if you said, well, like at what? At everything. Like all the time. You know, mad at my mother for whatever she had done to get cancer, mad at my dad for not wearing a seatbelt, uh, you know, mad at God for letting it ha happen. <clears throat> you know, I remember growing up hearing that uh, that saying, you know, God will put a, a man after his own heart where he wants him to be. And I remember thinking, well, thanks. You put me under a pier. Thank you very much. And uh, so the way I expressed it to the old man one one night is he, he had said something about God, and I said, I said, yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not really sure I believe in God anymore. And he said, that's okay. That's all right, because he still believes in you. Hmm. What a powerful statement to hear. It was, it was a, a, an odd time. I, you know, I look back on that, and I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't, even today, you know, you say, wow, would you, you know, what an amazing time. Yeah, it was an amazing time, but I wouldn't choose it again. Mm. I wouldn't choose it. And yet, without that, I, I certainly wouldn't be talking to you. I, I mean, the, he, this old man got me started uh, reading. I had always been kind of a Sports Illustrated, field and stream kind of person. And, and he got me started reading biographies. And I, I'd always hated biographies because they made us read them in school. And I didn't see the point. And he handed me three of them one night, and I knew they were biographies because they had nothing on it on the cover but the name. And it was Winston Churchill, George Washington Carver, and Will Rogers. And I I remember saying biographies, <laughs> and he said, "No, no, no, no. These are adventure stories. There's mysteries and romances and thrillers." And I said, "Huh?" He said, "Yeah, they're from the library. When you get through with them, take them back." And <laughs> And I started, you know, I started reading the Winston Churchill one that night, not really because I wanted to. It, the only reason I started reading it is because he was the only person in my life paying any attention to me. And I I knew he would ask me if I was reading them. And I wanted to be able to say, oh, yeah, I'm into the Churchill one. But but I right right off the bat, I remember reading something early on. It's like Winston met this little girl named Clementine and and didn't know that one day she was to become his wife. And I remember thinking, oh, well, there's the 
there's the romance. And, you know, and, and every chapter would end with something like, and if he had known what was in the other room, Winston would have never walked through the door. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, all right. And I, I'd keep reading. i go, well, there's the mystery. And, you know, the World War II started, and there's the thriller. And so it, it, it occurred to me that he had put that in my mind, but I it also occurred to me that it worked. <laughs> right. And, a, well, and let I, me ask you this, Andy. Because yeah. just diving into the emotional aspect of being 19 and, you know, how you end up on that pier is probably a whole other you know, long story, but just the idea of trying to, I don't know, process emotion at that age that I remember being 19 and sort of, you know, kind of being an adult, but still very much a kid trying to figure out life. And then boom, your parents are gone within months. Talk about that emotional aspect of trying to process all that. Well, you know, it was, this was an odd time for me because I had quit school. And uh, I, I quit college. And and so a lot of people, you know, were saying, yeah, you're ruining your life. You know, your 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 life, you'll never be able to accomplish anything if you leave school now. Da, da, da. And and so this was remember, this was before the Internet and before cell phones. And so when I really did look around and it appeared that I had ruined my life, I didn't say anything. I mean, nobody kind of knew. Right. And so, uh, and it, it, you know, it, I was like almost 21 before I really ended up under the pier because, you know, when my, when my parents died, I, I got $2,500 in insurance money. And uh, being the financial genius that I was, I took the entire 2500 and bought a trailer with it. Um, and I mean, I, I didn't. It didn't even occur to me I'd have to pay somebody to move it or pay somebody to put it somewhere. I, so I was behind the eight ball immediately. And and if you want to know how I ended up under the pier, it's really quick. I can tell you. I at first I had a trailer and a car. Then I had a motorcycle and a trailer. Then I had a motorcycle and a tent. Then I had a tent. Then I ended up under the pier. That <laughs> wow. took about a year and a half to get there, but but it was it was crazy because I was being quiet about it, and it you know I I was working, I, you know I, I didn't even really consider I didn't consider myself homeless because that wasn't even a term hmm. for anything then I you know, I was just kind of living on the beach I and nobody knew. I was in a town that nobody knew me, and it was a tourist town. And, you know, I just kind of looked like a teenager living on the beach. Now, of course, now, I, you know, I still live in Orange Beach, Alabama. I still live, I don't know, 10 miles away from the pier I slept under. And we go to church here, and we live in this town. We go out to eat. And, of course, my wife is a little nervous sometimes because there are people who they they know me, uh, but they don't connect me with the kid who used to bathe in the Holiday Inn swimming pool. And so, so we'll be at a, at a restaurant and people will come up to me and say, oh, I read your books. And some of them I want to say, really, I slept in your garage. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> That's crazy. But then so what brings you out of that? I mean, you're 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 homeless, you're you're lost, no mom and dad to guide you. And, you know, there's a 20 year period here before you write your first book. And we're going to get in that and in, into that in a moment. So what is going on in how do you come out of the that sort of? Well, there were two. There were despair. two. Thoughts. 
there were two thoughts. One, and, and both really given me by the, the old man. And uh, one of them, and I, you know, I don't know what you were like when you were like 22, 23. Me, I knew everything. I mean, I knew everything. Don't, don't we all? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I have a friend named Jeff Allen who's, who says, yeah, I knew everything. I'm surprised nobody called NASA and told them about me. <laughs> and, right. But, but uh, you know, I would always interrupt this old guy. We called him Jones. And I would interrupt this old guy and I'd say, yeah, but here's what I think. And yeah, but I've been thinking, but yeah, but another thing you need to think about. And one day he said, you need to be careful with that because that can be dangerous. And I said, what? He said, that thinking thing. And I said, what do you mean? He said, son, most people live their entire lives and never really understand. You can't always believe everything you think. Hmm. And that, it, Jason, I, I've spent several decades unpacking that one and realizing that just because I think it, just because I have come to uh, to to feel like I know something doesn't necessarily mean I'm at the end of that road. You know, the, the uh, I was reading the other day in the Bible. It, it it was explaining what I was reading said, said that wisdom is a deep understanding of principle. Okay, well if a deep understanding of principle, you kind of think of principle, or I always thought of principle as principle is a principle. And you either understand the principle or you don't understand the principle. But a deep understanding of principle, I guess that means that you can understand the principle, but there is more to it. There's more There's more road to travel. There's more to understand. And just because you think a certain way doesn't mean that you're at the end of it. And so that was one thing. The old man saying you can't believe anything. The other thing was that I ended up reading over 200 biographies uh, of these people. Wow. You know, these these famous, great, uh, successful, godly, uh, incredible, great great people. I was reading, reading books about great people. Which, when I say that, makes me think that they do books of any other kind of people. It's like <laughs> not not a loser section at Barnes and Noble. But I but I would re read these books, and it it became very clear to me that there were seven things that these guys had kind of, they all had, I, I called them things. I didn't know what they were. Uh, I didn't, I, I, they weren't seven habits. They weren't seven ideas. They weren't seven theories. They weren't mine. Any, any bozo could have read 200 books and figured it out. I, fi I finally figured out they were principles because they did work every time. But these seven things are these seven principles are really what I started throwing in my life to yank myself out of out of that situation. And those later became a part of my first book. Well, let's talk about that, that journey to eventually releasing your first book. And it was a book called The Traveler's Gift. I'm actually reading it right now. Uh, hugely successful book. And obviously, you know, as a person who's writing his own first book right now, you know, I'm kind of a excited to kind of see what God does with, with that. But for you, tell us about writing. You said you were a good writer in, in school. You're reading all of these biographies. All of a sudden, 2002 comes and your, your first book's released, The Traveler's Gift. How does that come about? Well, you know, I, 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 I didn't say I was a good writer. I, <laughs> I said I was an okay writer. True. I, you know, um, it's, it's, uh, it's not even something I particularly love to do to be honest with you people say oh you must love to write and i said no i don't really love to write i love having written 
<laughs> I, right. love, I love being through with it. Um, but I, but it's, it's work is, is like a discipline, but the idea for this story, um, it is, it's called the traveler's gift. And the idea was that somebody was going through the toughest time of their entire life and they got to travel through time to meet with seven historical figures who are also going through the toughest time in their own life. You got to, this guy gets to be with uh, Anne Frank in the annex he, he, and talk with her and question her. And he, he gets to be with, uh, with uh, uh, Lincoln at Gettysburg when he's about to make the speech. And he, and it's so all these different people. He's, he's with King Solomon, right? Right after Solomon says, bring me the sword and I'll tell you whose baby this is. And so each of these seven historical figures give this man a different principle that if he puts in his life, things will change. And so I wrote a story around that and I, I really felt led to do it. I really felt like it was good. The people who read it, you know, kind of, they, they liked it. But then I, I started trying to get it published. And I, I'll make a long story short here, but, you know, when I say I had a hard time getting it published, it took you know, three and a half years to get it published. And people say, oh, so like some people turned you down. Well, no, not some people. So like what, five or ten people? No, over over three and a half years, 51 different publishers wow. said that what I had written was not worth putting on paper. Now, you know, I, I, not to, and I just want to give you some context here. I mean, if anybody's working on something here or something that they felt led to do and somebody else is telling them it's not worth anything, I, I, I want you to know, and I'm not bragging with what I'm about to tell you here. I just want you to have some context. But today, this book has sold millions of copies around the world. Um, it's used by NFL teams. It's used uh, by uh, national championship football teams by World Series teams. It's used by Olympic athletes. It's used by corporations, by prisons, by, uh, I mean, it's, it's used all over the world. And yet, and, and after 15 years in print, it's still in hardback. And so, and the only reason I tell you that is to remember that 51 of the biggest publishing companies in the world said that what I had written was not worth putting on paper. Hmm. Well, that so, tells me that, that, uh, that you know how to take rejection. <laughs> Say. Well, I tell you what, you know, my problem during that time was I, I had written the seventh decision. The seventh principle was persist without exception. That was the seventh decision. And I'm right, like, right. well, thank you. Thank you, God. I've <laughs> written this book, and that's the last decision. Now you're teaching me a lesson about it. But, but you know, the, the principle persists without exception. See, that, that is, that's a key because in our society today, you know, the, the, uh, the, 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 the target always moves. And in our society today, persisting is not enough. Uh, you, you can quit anything, and everybody's fine with it as long as you persist. That, that persist has become the norm. And so it's like, well, you tried. I mean, look how hard you tried. I mean, you can certainly say, and if anybody could have done it, you would have done it. And you tried. And so nobody's going to say anything now. You tried. Okay, well, if you persist without exception, well, that's a different thing. Because there, I guess, why would you even persist without exception? Well, because there's no way. Yeah, I guess. And so what is persisting without exception? It was finding a way 
where there is no way. Hmm. Well, what you know, what does that look like? I'll, t- I'll tell you this: it's not leadership, it's not money, it's not time. And that's what everybody says: we're out of time, we're out of money, we don't have the right leadership. But the only thing you're lacking is an idea. That's the only thing that you're lacking is an idea. And if you ever think you're out of ideas, uh, that there are no more ideas, just remember we put men on the moon before anybody thought to put wheels on luggage. (laughs) There are plenty of ideas. That is a good thing to remember. We are talking to Andy Andrews here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. And Andy, I just want to ask you with the book, when you write it and it finally gets published, when is that moment for you when you realize, oh, this is this is really making a dent or an impact on people. You know, you're suddenly getting calls from teams and your book is being used and, you know, in, in schools and things like that, all the different places that you said. When is that moment for you like, oh, this is something that that, that this isn't just a little book that I decided to write. This is something that's going to make a, a pretty big impact here. Well, you know, at first it didn't. Hmm. I mean, people maybe don't know how books uh, go into bookstores, but uh, bookstores do not buy books. It's all, a bookstore is a big consignment place. And, you know, if a book, if a publisher or somebody has the juice to get your book in there, uh, if it doesn't sell in, in a month, it's gone. Hmm. They're all gone and it's never coming back. I mean, there are 500,000 books put out every single year. Well, think about a Barnes & Noble. I mean, they're what are there in in one bars and Noah's what maybe thirty thousand titles total and that has to include all of John Grisham's stuff <laughs> of <right>? course <laughs> it has to include to kill a mockingbird and so to get a book in there is tough enough but to keep it there well you know the traveler's gift went in the bookstore and it was out in three weeks and they were in the back of the warehouse and uh, nothing happened with it but I I, I knew. I say, you know, God did not teach me how to swim just to get me offshore and let me drown. Hmm. There is something here. And I, you know, I wrote this book for a reason. And there's something about the, you know, I, say, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But because, you know, it's like, golly, three and a half years to get it published. And the publisher has it for a year. And four and a half years after I wrote it, it comes out. It's in the bookstore and out of the bookstore in 30 days. And so at that point, I thought, okay, well, God, you obviously want people to read it. So I, I had to buy my own books from the publisher. I couldn't afford them all, but I would buy 100 at a time and I'd give them away. And I just, you know, give them away on airplanes or give them away, you know, to somebody. And I would, I would say, Jason, I would, I would say, hey, uh, you might enjoy this. This is for your next crisis. And people would look at me and go, well, how do you know I'm going to have a crisis? And I said, well, that's part of being with us on this planet. You're either in a crisis, coming out of a crisis, or headed for a crisis, right? That's right, yeah. And they would kind of laugh and they'd take the book. Well, somebody gave it to somebody that gave it to somebody that gave it to to your friend, Robin Roberts. Yeah. And, uh, and the next thing we know is Good Morning America is is like now making it their book of the month. Well, I never will forget them calling the the publisher calling me and saying, make sure you watch this morning. Here's what's going to happen. And so Robin gets on there and Robin is talking to Diane Sawyer and she's talking about the book. And and Robin says, what do you think about this? And Diane Sawyer says, you know what? 
this is a book America needs at this time. And all of a sudden it hit me. When I wrote the book, America was not in the same situation that it was in when they presented it to people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took off at that point. Post and 9-11, of course, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. And so Robin still, she is, she's my buddy, man. She, I, I don't know her well, but she has championed that book. She, you know, will occasionally say that's her favorite book. It's on her bedside. And I, I'm, I'm very grateful to her, obviously. That's amazing. Well, Robin Roberts and I, I don't know her very well either, but certainly working at ESPN and, and knowing people who know her very well, I've never heard a, a bad word said about her. She's a, a, as much as I know, she's a wonderful human being. And that's really a, a neat thing to, to have labeled. And in fact, I look at my copy of the book in my hand right now, and it literally says, good morning, America's read this. So that is the traveler's gift. I can't recommend that more right now. And we're going to talk about some more of your books in a minute, Andy, but we are a sports and faith podcast. So I want to ask you, we talked about the faith side a little bit. We'll dive into that more, I think in a little while, but We'll dive into the sports side. So one of your your latest books, The Little Things, inside it, I'm just reading an endorsement from Jim McElwain, who is the head coach, head football coach at the University of Florida. And he says, I met Andy when at Alabama and he worked with our team. He was also a resource for me at Colorado State as the new head coach of the Florida Gators. One of the final calls, I'm sorry, one of the first calls I made was to him. Andy Andrews' words are the first I read when I enter my office and the last I read when I leave every single day, that's a heck of an endorsement. And, and you've been doing this, a lot of speaking and working with teams and individual athletes, even tell us about that sort of world that you're in this sports world and how that came about. And maybe there's a story that you can share of how you've encouraged a team or a player. Talk about sports world and, and entering that realm. You know what, what I really believe is that uh, I think encouragement is great but I think proof is better. Hmm. And, and so I, I've, I've done a lot of thinking through the years about why people do what they do and how they perform as they do and what changes performance. You know, if, if you look at uh, the past few weeks in college football, uh, you know, Joey Jones at South Alabama, the head coach of South Alabama, South Alabama beat Troy. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, when I grew up in Dothan, you know, Troy State University, it was like, you know, it's a junior college, right? And they, they'd gone Division One, But but Troy beat LSU. Well, what LSU beat Syracuse, I think, right? Syracuse beat Clemson. I mean, does anybody <laughs> in the right mind think that Troy has the same uh, level of of athletes that LSU does? Of course not. I mean, I mean, does you know? It could it, it is it even possible that Syracuse and Clemson are on the same level athletically? No, no, it's not. Of course, this is the stuff that keeps Nick Saban awake at night. You talk about Nick at night. There you go, because he he knows it can happen anytime. Well, I looked at this this thing, this performance thing, and. Um, a bunch of years ago, began to have the opportunity to. I, Nancy Lopez was one of my first people that I worked with, and and so I and I can't break a hundred on the golf course, you know, um, but I can coach them, and and the reason that I can that I can coach them is because it's a it's a mental process, and anybody who can think 
logically to the truth can change their physical stars, so to speak. And, and so it became something that, uh, you know, the first time I ever went in uh, with Coach Saban, uh, it, it's, it's very, very funny that that very first year that I did anything with them, they won a national championship. And, and of course, my boys were very young then. And then, you know, the next year they won a national championship again. And, of course, at that point, you know, my boys think, well, it's our dad. You know, our dad. You know, our dad. If our dad works with you, you know. And so, and I never will forget, we were at, at uh, in the kitchen one night and my cell phone rings and it said blocked caller. Well, at that time, blocked caller for me was Nancy Lopez or Bill Gaither. And I would take either call. So I picked it up. Well, it was Gene Chiswick. Oh, yeah. At, at Auburn. And, um, and so I make some weird face to my wife. I'd never met Gene. And, um, and so I listened to him talk and my boys are listening to me talk to him and he's telling me how they found the traveler's gift and they're using the traveler's gift and, and asking me some questions about the traveler's gift. And can he talk to me? And so when I get off the phone, my boys who at that time are like, you know, eight and six, you know, like they take me back to the bedroom and say, dad, who was that? I said, it was Gene Chiswick. The Auburn coach? Yes, yes. And they said, Dad, can't you tell them not to use your book? And I literally said, I literally said, guys, you know, come on. It's not like they're going to win a national championship. <laughs> and, of course, they Wrong. did. They exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so my boys have always blamed me for Auburn's national championship. But every year since then, including last year with Clemson, you know, I've either, either done something with the coach or they've used my material or – or, or whatever, you know, with Florida State, with Ohio State. I started working with Ohio State when Coach Trestle was there. Yeah. But it's always, it's never, I, I generally work more with the coaches than I do the athletes. And occasionally I'll explain something to the athletes because there are, there are things that, I mean, what you believe affects you so greatly that you cannot perform against it. And I'm not saying what you say you believe or what you state as your goal. I'm saying what deep down, what you really, really and truly believe is so powerful that you can't perform against it. And so that could be a negative or a positive. And if you can learn how to harness that as a, as a golfer, as a, as a shooter, as a pitcher, as a as a quarterback, as a coach, and you know, if if I had if I had to say what I do, what I do is I help people compete at a level the competition doesn't know a game's going on. Hmm. That's what I do. So, in dealing with the sports world, I would assume that there's been many occasion where a subject has come up that you'd rather have not been brought up. Uh, or something that you didn't want to talk about. So give us an example of an uh, uncomfortable situation for you. Maybe name an incident or, or an, a, a time when that happened where you told someone something that they didn't necessarily want to hear. Okay. All right. I, I, I can tell you, I know, I know a great example of an uncomfortable moment <laughs> where I tell something 
to somebody they didn't want to hear, and it was Nick Saban. Is that right? And yeah, it had ta- it had taken, um, you know, a bunch of people saying, "Hey, you need to talk to this guy," or "Hey, you need to read this guy's books," or "Hey," and and so I never will forget. You know, it's like I, of course, I'm an Alabama fan, right? And so, it, I, you know, I'd gone into a lot of others, but now I'm going in with Alabama. And so it was, you know, and my boys are going to be there and they're going to go to practice that day. You know? And so I, I get in there and uh, first time I ever met him and I'm sitting in the office with him and we had been there like five minutes and uh, Linda, his assistant comes in and she says, uh, coach Grant just called. Now, Anthony Grant at the time was the basketball coach at Alabama. He said, Coach Grant just called and he found out that Andy is over here. And if you're not going to have lunch with him, he wants to have lunch. Well, Nick kind of looked at me and he said, what, do you know him? I said, I don't. And so Linda said, well, Coach Grant uh, carries around a traveler's gift, has carried around a traveler's gift every single day with him since he first got his first job at VCU. And I said, wow, I didn't know that. And so then Coach Saban looks at me and he says, now, what, what is your, what is your background? Because now he's like kind of interested, it seems like. And he said, what is your background? And I said, well, I, you know, I write and I, you know, I talk to people and try to think through some stuff. And, you know, I help people compete at a, in a way that, that the competition doesn't know a game's going on. And he looks at me and he says, know me football. What's your background in football? And I said, well, I played in the sixth grade. (laughs) And I I thought, man, I do not want to say this. I do not want to say this. And and I know he is not going to want to hear this. But it was kind of funny because he looked at me like, I can't believe you just tell me that. And then we kind of went on, but it was, it was a very odd moment. I never will forget how his face looked when I said, yeah. I mean, cause you know, you're thinking here's a guy who's in the conversation for the best of all time. And so what could I possibly help him with? <laughs> yeah. I played football in the sixth grade. Listen to me. That's awesome. I love that. And I've, I've had the privilege of meeting coach Saban a few times when he came through ESPN to do a bunch of interviews and he's a very serious man. I, I haven't got a chance to know him certainly <laughs> like you and I would, he's very intimidating. You walk by and you might shake his hand and talk for a few minutes. He's like, okay, where are we going? Where's what's next? Yeah. And uh, that's intimidating. And you're thinking this is the greatest coach of all time asking you what you know about football. And you got to say, well, I played in the sixth grade. That's an awesome story, Andy. I mean, fortunately, football is like a lot of other things. If you want to compete at a higher level, you got to understand that everybody competes the same way. Whether you're in business, whether you've got a book coming out like you do, Jason, Mm. whether somebody is a teacher, no matter what they're doing. If If you're a little league coach, whatever it is you're doing, the first thing to remember is that everybody competes the same way. And that means that that generally everybody would only increase what they do incrementally. And so I look, you know, when I work with a client, when I work with a corporate client or a, a, a team or a coach, 
I realized, look, I'm a nobody. I, I'm a nobody. I, you, you, you're not going to get any celebrity juice, you know, from bringing me in. I mean, you can bring Peyton Manning in and, you know, you can pay him whatever you want to pay him. And, and he's, he's awesome, but it doesn't really matter if he even does anything or not. For God's sake, you had Peyton Manning. Right, exactly. You know, but, but if you bring me in, let me tell you something. I got to have results. And I can't have just normal ones. I got to have great ones. Well, the great results to be had are never doing what everybody else is doing. If you're doing what everybody else is doing, you're doing something wrong because everybody is not getting results that we would consider incredible. And so you got to be doing something different. And everybody is competing the same way. And even on the football field, you got to be good from the snap to the whistle, right? Everybody's good. Got to be good from the snap to the whistle. But I'm going to tell you something. If you can figure out how to legitimately compete, not just from the snap to the whistle, but from the whistle to the next snap, while everybody else is just standing around, You'll run them off the field. Awesome. And this can be done. This can be done in, in almost any game, in almost any business. And it, it, it always has a people component. We're talking to Andy Andrews here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast, New York Times bestselling author, renowned speaker. And Andy, you speak to a ton of organizations on an array of different topics. So let's pretend that our audience is listening to this. Our okay. audience, predominantly men and women of faith who love sports and love Jesus. What is the message that you think would most resonate with them that you preach? Okay, it would revolve around a question. And here is my question to you. Who do you think has a greater imagination? You or God? Okay, uh, I guess your answer is probably God, right? Okay, right. yeah, me, me too, me too. Okay, so do you believe that, uh, you know, the Bible says God wants his best for you? Okay, do you believe that? What? Yeah, okay, all right, let me ask you, you this. Do you want the best for you? And And of course you would say, well, yeah. Yeah, I, I want the best for me. Okay, then the Bible says God wants his best for you. So do you believe God wants his best for you? Well, yeah. Yeah, I do believe that. Okay, then then let me ask you this. If you believe God has a greater imagination than you do, when you stop to consider what you imagine the best for you is and compare it to what God imagines the best for you is, how big is that gap? Can we spend some time learning to think about ourselves and what we are to do and the parents we are to become and the people we are to become? And husbands and wives and friends and citizens. Can, can we spend some time thinking about what it would look like if we allowed God to pull off his best in our lives? If we let go of those reins and remembered that 
we can't always believe everything we think. There might be something beyond what we think right now. And, and if we're able to let go of those reins, just a little bit, and begin to rely on God's imagination for the best for us. Again, to rely on God's vision of where our lives should go. Then what is that going to look like? Wow. That's really good because I, I think when I look back at my life, things happened in my life that I could never have imagined. And I think you talk to a lot of people who've, you know, kind of lived crazy lives or done things that they never expected. Right. It usually is something to do with the imagination being like people ask me about my job at ESPN and they'll say that must have been a dream job. I'm like, no, because my dreams were never big enough to dream about ESPN. I was dreaming about becoming a broadcaster in my little hometown of Albany, New York. And what you just described in a lot of ways resonates with me personally, because that's exactly what it was. It was allowing God's dreams to be bigger than anything I could have dreamed. That's awesome. Right. Buddy, we, I, I tell you what, we sure do appreciate you. We are, uh, and I say we, I mean, my friends, uh, me, the American public, we're fortunate to have you out there. So that was a, an amazing decision you made wow. a few months ago. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. I don't want to, I don't want to be interviewed here. I feel like it's, it's, it's your interview. I want to interview you, but I do appreciate that very much. And I want to ask two more questions for you, Andy, before we say goodbye. The first, your latest book, it's called the little things, why you really should sweat the small stuff. And I read this in just a few days. It was awesome. Packed with so many good nuggets. I underlined, I don't know, every other page I was underlining something. But I just want to ask for you just to talk about the book for a minute and why you decided to write this book right now. I think this is, you know, I'm kind of a contrarian I, because I, I, I do, I look for big results. And so knowing that the big results are always contrary to the ordinary way of thinking, I'm always trying to, to look at what, you know, look at a, a, a difference. Just like, like in my state right now, in Alabama, a big thing, you know, is election stuff going on. And a big thing is prison reform. Mm. Prison reform. And and see, it, now, I, I hear that and I think, really? I think if we're talking about prison reform being such a big deal, then we have missed the mark. Because we're we're waiting way too late to get involved here. Because I don't know of any mother in the state of Alabama who is praying every night, please God, let my son get put in a better prison. Right. You know. I and so so my point is that I I begin to look at a contrarian view at a at a different view. And so with the little things, the common way of thinking of things is we want big picture people. We want to hire a big picture guy. We want to have the big picture. We want to follow somebody with a big picture. But somewhere along the line, people forget every big picture you've ever seen in your life is made up of tiny little brushstrokes. And so when people say, don't sweat the small stuff, let me tell you something, you better. Hmm. When, when uh, you know, Da Vinci created the Mona Lisa, 
Uh, he did it with the smallest brush that had ever been used at the time. And his own friends were saying, what, you know, what are you doing? This is going to take you forever. You've got to actually sell something to make a living. And his answer was, I'm creating a masterpiece. And, and truly, obviously he did. You go to the Louvre today and look at the Mona Lisa, even through a magnifying glass, you can't, in, you can't discern individual brush strokes. It, was, it, it is a masterpiece of photographic quality. Well, whatever it is you're creating in your life, with your children, with your career, uh, you know, with your life, at the end of it all, it's, it's going to be uh, a masterpiece or a disaster. And it will have all been done one moment at a time, one decision at a time, one thought at a time, one tiny little brush stroke at a time. And so that's why I wrote the book, is to illustrate the power of these little bitty things that make such a huge difference and how to harness them. Yeah, it's an awesome book. It's called The Little Things, Why You, should, why you Really Should Sweat the Small Stuff. And it's out now, everywhere books are found, and I can't recommend it enough. Great great book to read and, and you can really nail it in a couple days too that's what's great and then use it as a resource <laughs> to go back it's not one of those thick 500 page books that you need to kind of spend two months reading so it's really yeah i don't write any of them <laughs> that's, and that's a good thing right <laughs> all right andy last question i do appreciate your time being here on the podcast and we ask this to all of our guests here on the podcast we've done almost 50 of these now and it's simply what is the lord what has god been teaching you right now what have you been learning from him God has been teaching me lately that there is a difference between what is true and the truth. Hmm. Explain. That, that things can be true and yet not be the truth. The truth connotes a bottom line. That's as deep as we can go. That's as, that's, uh, that's the bottom of the pool. That's the the deepening of the uh, of the wisdom. You know the truth, and it's one thing. It's like the best. You know there there are uh, you know it, it, we're not talking about some of the best. We're not talking about among the best. The best is one thing. There can be different categories, but in each category, the best is one thing. Well, the truth is one thing. Now. As a people, we tend to stop at what is true. And the reason is because, well, we get an answer, it works, it produces a result, and so why search anymore? You know, an example of this would be if you took a blind person and you led him uh, across a, a field and you said, I'm about to uh, allow you to feel around here. There's an animal that you've never heard of. Uh, and it's called an elephant. And I'm going to give you a few minutes, feel around, and, and I want you to tell me what an elephant is like and how it could be used. You know, after a few minutes, a blind person might tell you, well, an elephant is uh, it's very tall, very wide, it's flat. It could be used as a, a gate. I suppose a bunch of elephants could be used as a wall. <laughs> well, that's true. It's not the truth. Because until you got to the truth of an elephant, you'd never have the full picture and you'd never understand how many different ways you could use an elephant. And so the same thing is, is the case with many things in our life. There are things that we'll, you know, we'll ask, why, 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 why? And then we get an answer and we stop because we only ask why when things 
like or, or wrong. You know, we got wine knocked out of us when we were little kids. Don't ask me that. Don't ask me that anymore. And and so we, we kind of stop until something's wrong. Then we go, well, why is that not working? Why does this not happen? Why? And then we get an answer and it starts working and we don't ask anymore. And And so we should ask why when things are working. Why is this working like it's working? Why does this happen like this? Why does this do this? Because then we start to learn more, start to get more. And so God has showed me recently there is a lot beyond what is true. And a lot of the uh, things that will increase your, uh, your effectiveness as a mom, as a dad, your effectiveness as a husband, as a wife, as a friend, as an influencer in your community, almost anybody can come to the conclusion about what is true. But if you dig in and at the same time let go, God will lead you to what is the truth in categories that other people only understand what is true. It's really good. I love John fourteen six. Jesus speaks and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, a truth, and a life. And I love the way you use truth in that because that's biblical. I mean, that's what, that's what this Jesus that we follow says. So really, really, really good stuff there. Andy Andrews, thank you so much. He is the best-selling author of The Traveler's Gift, of The Noticer, and his newest release, The Little Things. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, just grateful for your time here on the, on the podcast. Buddy, I'm honored to be with you. I've been an admirer of yours from afar for a long time. And very much appreciate you and your influence on my sons and on my family and my friends. I appreciate you very much. And we do thank Andy Andrews for joining us here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. You can reach us on Twitter at sports underscore spectrum. As always, you can go to the website sportspectrum.com. And you can also leave a review. So go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, search Sports Spectrum, and it'll have an area that says leave a review. So click leave a review. Let us know what you think of the podcast and uh, tell us any guest ideas that you you have or any thoughts on, on what the the guests said in our podcast. Love to hear from you. So leave a review on iTunes. It helps get the word out and more people can hear about the uh, amazing stories that we've had here on the Sports Spectrum podcast. You can also reach me via email, jason at sportspectrum.com or on Twitter as well at Jason Romano. We will see you next time and we thank you for listening right here on the Sports Spectrum podcast. Have a great rest of your day, everybody.